we could do one of those corny intros. <laughs> this is Josh. And then you go, this is Rich. <laughs> and we're, we're selling- here with the SMB off show. <laughs> like we're selling jewelry on QVC or something. <laughs> Welcome to Ops Talk, where we record the conversations of real operators discussing the problems they are working through and the strategies that they're using to work through them. Today, Rich Jordan and I discuss new acquisitions, building accountable teams, running multiple locations, and approaching your business like a scientist. We are both active on Twitter, and if you'd like to interact with us, our handles are StrongPointRich and Joshua M. Schultz. So yeah, big thing is acquisition closed in Ohio about three weeks ago now, probably a little longer, but I've been roped in for about three weeks now. So both getting them stabilized, like, you know, post acquisition, everybody just assumes everything's going to change. It's kind of weird. Like, like, okay, like, what do I do with this? Like, can I go to the bathroom? Like all these questions, can you like, just keep doing what you've been doing for the last 20 years? You know, we'll, We'll talk changes in a little bit. So it's been basically stabilizing the the operation, going through and saying, hey, like, well, how did this used to work? Let's keep doing that. And then in the background, working with Eric, director of ops, and Vanessa, who's kind of there on the ground, finding the easy strategic wins. So parts that it takes them two weeks to make that we can make in Minneapolis in two days. And then, you know, by moving that, you open up eight days of basically capacity by just moving that from one plant to the next. So those are some quick wins and focusing on capacity, opening systems, implementation and stabilization. Cool. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we are in the process of closing an acquisition right now, and this will be our first swing at going multi-location, right? So you guys, you guys kind of have some reps on that, which I'm interested to pick your brain on a little bit, but this will be our first step to multi-locations. This is in a new state, about the same size company. So we're going to double in size, a little more than double in revenue. And yeah, just really thinking about like what that means from a like leadership, management, accountability, culture standpoint, doing that remote. You know, I, we've kind of been doing that remote with guarantee, right? I mean, we've got... I was going to ask, like, are you looking at it like... All right, I got guarantee. You're forced to run it remote because it's in a different area. I built systems to do that. Now it needs me less. I'm just going to repeat that with the next facility. Or are you looking at it like I want to use guarantee to now pull this in so it's a whole new thing? A little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely feel like we are doing a lot, particularly on the op, on the op side. There's there's plenty of stuff we can do better. We can do better. On the offside, like we we have, you know, we feel like we do we're doing things the right way. So there'll be some like installment of that for this new company. Now, I run Guarantee remotely, but at the same time, my GM at Guarantee now is my partner, right? TJ, who you've met. That's not going to be the case for this new acquisition. So we're, we're we're kind of figuring that out. But really, what that looks like is me going in, and I'm basically I'm planning to spend 90 days there. The first 90 days, I'm going to basically live there, get it up to speed, stabilize, make a lot of changes. Like at the end of that 90 days, this company's probably going to look completely different. And I'll be there on the ground to kind of message that correctly, you know, kind of st- keep the train on the tracks as we go through that change. But 
the, the interesting thing is, you know, this company is a little bit larger than guarantee is right now, right? So we're talking like three and a half million dollars, 16, 17 employees, right? And they're mature, but, but they're, um, like they're, they're, they're like a solid going concern, but they're, they have like serious margin problems. So, so there is like, you know, there is a bit of like going in there and like, we're going to like break some shit and fix it, you know? So um, the so. margin problems, you know, this because you know, the metrics they should be achieving based on their assets, rep or text and size. And you know what can be achieved. And you basically say, Hey, you're running the business wrong. You didn't say that, but that's what you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's a, it's a much better problem to have than the problem I had 18 months ago, which was I inherited guarantee. It had great margins, but it had no staff. It had no infrastructure. Right. And then we added the staff and infrastructure. What happened to the margin craters, right? I'd much rather take a company with a thin margin, profitable, but a thin margin that had, and basically one of the, re- one of the reasons that it has a margin problem is that it's basically overstaffed for its size. Right now, we're not going to go in there and, and swing axes and chop people's heads off. What we're going to do is we're going to grow. I mean, this company's larger than than Guarantee was when I took over. It, you know, it's three. It's basically three times larger than it was when I took over than Guarantee was when I took it over. But it has the same net. So you think obviously three x the net is doable just by operational execution? Yeah, I think so. So there's there's some like very simple, not easy kind of operational levers that, that we can pull that I've identified. And, and, and this is like key insight for me is that I got to spend almost a week at this company during due diligence and like game changer. I'm spoiled for life. I'm never going to want to do another deal without spending time on site. How, how did, was your guys? How did you go there as a consultant or? So this guy, I met, I met this seller, I met the owner at an event in Minneapolis right after I hung out with you and Reg and like out of the blue, we were sitting at a table together and turns out, you know, well, for one, we got along pretty well and we were like, Hey, why don't I come check your business out? You're in HVAC. I'm plumbing. I want to add HVAC, see what I can learn. So we went ahead and scheduled that. And then when we were there, we're like, Hey, okay, you know, like let's, let's, let's do a deal together. You know, he's trying to get out. We're trying to get in. You know, he likes us. He feels good with his yeah. company in our hands and everything. It's so, funny because Red was giving you shit about going to a conference and all that. And you ended up coming away with a deal. That's that's pretty good. It's, it's hard to get you I know, um, I an aha better than that. Reg is like, this idiot pays these fees for this, uh, <laughs> for this organization. What is he doing? Yeah. Well, yeah. Walk out with a, with a t- you know, 2X in size. A deal. So, yeah, I mean, it's great. It turned out that, uh, and I didn't know this when, when we met in Minneapolis, but he was actually under contract with, not under contract, I guess, under agreement with a, with a broker. So he was actually represented, which, you know, good and bad. I think uh, it's helped us kind of get it across the finish line without having to drag him across. So, you know, that was helpful. But yeah, I mean, you know, get, to get back to it is that, you know, we have to spend a week at this company and really see like the real details of how they operate, right? And and we happen to know what we're looking at when we look at, you know, maybe not HVAC, but definitely like a trades, home service, dis- dispatch-based company. Like I know exactly what that's supposed to look like. So like dove in, I mean, like literally spending like two hours with the dispatcher, right? Like 
riding with the salesman, spending time with the GM, you know? So super useful, not only to like get to know the people and, you know, like one, you know, one of our goals of that week was like, Hey, like we want to walk out of here and have everyone in this company be like, yo, those guys are pretty cool. That'd be pretty, I bet it's pretty cool to work for their company. Right. Surprise, you know, but another part of it was, wait, wait, you just avoided you just avoided the second part. When you walked out, did they think you were cool? You're like, that would have been cool. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I like to think so. We had a pretty good week. Yeah. We had a really nice time. That's good. Um, but what we also saw is like, you know, very clear, low-hanging fruit available. Right. So, like I said, like guarantee now is very is is pretty much right there in stride with with this company. With our with our call volume on the phones. I have three people dedicated to the phones so to make sure that we don't miss a call, right? This company has one and she's only on during business hours. So that they're missing 500 to 600 calls a month right now. Like that's money. I think like you're talking tactics, but I think what's in, like what I take away from this, you know, what I'm learning more and more in our own path forward is generating the playbook is where a lot of the value is. Like, you know what the levers are, not only because you pulled them either purposefully or accidentally at guarantee, but because you paid attention to what you were pulling and the results. And I think that like, everybody's gonna say that they are, but a lot of people you talk to aren't, right? They're going in there, they're just doing five, six, six different things, something they saw on Twitter, four things from a book, they're doing it all at once, they just want the results, and then they get the results and they don't exactly know what caused them. Where if you were methodically walking through, like, we're going to try this meeting cadence. And then two weeks later, we're going to track this and talk about it. We're going to change our metric. We're going to alter our incentive program. You know, oh, that's what did it. Because all of a sudden, everybody clicked on or all of a sudden, the meetings were of value. Or all of a sudden, like you said in our last conversation, we had variance. And within a week, all of a sudden, the variance went away. And then, so that's almost like this post postmortem of, okay, this is an important part of the playbook. And then this other thing, like incentive maybe not as important as I thought. And then you go through and you, you, you know, you, you plan something, you do it, and then you look back on it and do a postmortem and you slowly put together this meaningful playbook. And then the playbook is invaluable rules of thumb ideas and approaches that you just say, Oh, they're only using two of my 20 approaches, huge upside. Oh, they're using 18 of my 20 approaches, a little bit of upside. It's going to be more, whatever I'm going to pay a lower multiple. And you can almost gauge or multiple or get deals that others couldn't by playing the arbitrage between the spread on what you know is possible and how much of that of your playbook they're already doing yep no you're absolutely right i think to to take that even further like when you're growing these businesses particularly like your first business right like where you're really trying to like cut your teeth there's really something to be said for like approaching it like a scientist or like an engineer and really just like testing, testing, testing. And, and, and what's important and, and like a p- important clarification there is that testing requires action. So you actually have to do it, right? It's not just like reading and thinking and whiteboarding. It's actually like, let's try this out. See, like throw it at the wall, see if it sticks. And that's basically what we did. I mean, we've, you know, we've changed, I don't know, a hundred things that guarantee in the last 18 months, but, but yeah, to to a point like they've all they were all kind of distinct and discreet and we kind of marched our way forward you know like some of the best practices i have now i might have implemented only two or three months ago right 
and you know, it's like a painful journey where we're at, at certain points in the journey. You're just like, look, like this whole part of my business is screwed up right now. I just like, don't have bandwidth to figure that out. I'm going to just accept that that's screwed up and I'm going to fix this. I'm going to focus here first. And like, ultimately we'll get there. And that's basically the journey we've been on. But absolutely. Like now we have the playbook and it's like scarred in my brain. Yeah. You know, you know why too. So you also know when to modify the playbook and when, where you can tweak it instead of taking the rules of thumb, you can look at the business and go, Oh, technically my playbook says X, but looking at what they have here, either it's better or worse than we're probably going to anticipate because you know, the story behind the playbook, not just the bullets in the playbook, the bullet points. And I know, I remember talking to you as you were going through a lot of it. And obviously we're all still going through it, but this parts that you've got, like you and you implemented a incentive program and changed it like three times, I think. And it wasn't like week to week. It was, ah, something's not working. And there was a scientific reason, right? It was this line item in the income statement is now way out of whack. I didn't anticipate this. And there was a couple iterations, I think, before you came to something that you found worked for your guys. And I don't think it was the thing you would have thought at first glance would have incentivized them. But for whatever reason, it's the one that worked. And I mean, when you're results driven rather than intellect or theory driven, it doesn't really matter why you just, I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter, right? You just try stuff until you see what happens. Yeah. And, and like the actions, the actions bring more thoughts, right? So like the incentive program we ultimately landed on, like I could have never come up with that as a non-player sitting at home scribbling on a piece of paper, right? Like I had to like actually get in there, like put together a crap incentive plan, twist it, turn it, and then just be in there every day thinking about it, talking to technicians, riding in the trucks, just like immersed. And then all of a sudden, like, it, cause that the final incentive program really was just like a light bulb moment for me. Boom. Like there it is, you know? So yeah, you, you just have to like get in the game, be thoughtful about it and, and act on, on those thoughts. All right, Josh. So like I said, like I'm just now embarking on multi-location and you guys have six locations now. Uh, or no, no. You have six deals. We have maybe six companies, locations. five foundries, four locations. One of them came with an e-com company. I should, oh, not really e-com, but kind of an e-com company. Right, the docs. Yep. And then one of them was a tuck-in. So they bought one before I came on board, one in Minneapolis, one in St. Paul. Tuck it in, which is kind of part of the playbook now. There's a there's okay. an anchor deal. So you, guys are in, in. you guys are in Minneapolis, New Hampshire, Cincinnati, Kansas City. So you basically have, and I know you guys call them plant managers, right? At each location. And you and Red, well, not you, but Reg sort of works out of the Minneapolis location. He'll tell tell you that he doesn't, but he kind of does, right? At least Eric works out of the Minneapolis location, who's your kind of director of ops, if that's what you call him. And then, but so you have three plant managers across the country that are operating on their own day to day. So how do you, what kind of talent are you looking for for those positions? Where are you finding them? How are you incentivizing them? How are you holding them accountable? What's your meeting cadence look like? What's your reporting cadence look like? Like, just lay it on me. Because I'm thinking through all this stuff right now. All right. So, like we just talked about, we're building that playbook. We're trying things. I'll tell you where we're at now. What seems to be working? What what doesn't seem to be working? Uh, and you'll have to remind me of some of those questions. But we've got, for better, lack of a better term, plant managers 
we've started to think about for some of the smaller ones, it doesn't quite make sense to have somebody like be a plant manager. They don't have the overhead to cover a plant manager. And so we almost need one of the molders to kind of run the floor. So that's a small thing we're working through. Like think about it. If you didn't have the overhead for a manager, you might have to have like your top tech or your lead tech or your most experienced guy also spend an extra hour a day, whatever, you know, thinking through things. That's the equivalent of kind of what we're trying to think through. Like New Hampshire, New Hampshire small. We need a manager there because they don't have any direction, but we just can't, we don't have the overhead. So we've actually been building a program over the last week or two, which I'll be sending out later today to take one of the molders who's got a lot of experience has expressed some initiative to kind of say, okay, you, while you're on the floor here, if you see something you don't like, you can make the call. And then a whole idea of making the call we talked about, but but I think that's kind of what you're asking me is how are we letting these guys make the call? And so the way, <laughs> I know you hate when I bring this up, but the way we're trying to think about it. Oh no. Yeah, man, I know you, where it's going. Cause this, you asked, and this is, it's a big oh. part of it. <laughs> Here we go. We're built. Here we go. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. I might have to lay it on thick now though. I'll be really happy if I'm wrong, but I know. No, I'm you're right. not wrong. You know where I'm going. We are building a network of foundries. And, and the, the idea is if we centralize everything, it's going to go too slow. Like it's just, if they have to check with us for everything, it's going to go too slow. The other thing is a lot of these guys haven't been allowed to make their own decisions. And so they don't at this moment have the tools to make it. They don't understand that they can make it. They've never even thought about the fact that they can make decisions. So we've been trying to restructure everything. And like, it's crazy because you can see exactly where you want to go, right? You look two years, well, for me, it's two years, but I have it on paper now. And I know exactly where we need to be with the teams. It's just, it's such a shift in mindset and approach to that filters down from everything to, like you said, manager cadence and ops stuff all the way down to what do I do when we run out of this supply or what do we do when, you know, we pay this monthly bill or how do we set up the snow removal? I mean, all of that came up in the last week and it's all this different approach of it used to all run through the head guy. And as we grow, that that can't happen. I don't have the bandwidth um, now, let alone if we double in size. And so, you know, something I've been talking a lot about online is let's build something that doesn't need me day to day. Not because I want to pull myself out, but because it can't possibly scale that way. And so let's take the time to build that structure and that infrastructure now so that as we grow, it continues to replicate itself. And it's basically a culture that spreads rather than, you know, individuals at the top that spread. And so as we build this out, we're thinking about it like there are these managers that have full autonomy of their plant and their plant's sole purpose is to produce castings and we have a shared services level so for us that's stuff like planning and quoting but they can call audible on anything that we do and when i say we i mean the shared services team do for them they can call audible they can say nope not going to work my furnace that you planned here isn't working as hard or i can't melt the capacity that you've got or hey if i put this job first i can actually buy myself a week to get the consumables i'm going to need for the other job Right. So like stuff that we may not think about or haven't built into our planning process or our quoting process for that to happen. We've been talking about how do we set these teams up so that it's not a free for all, but they can actually still get stuff done. 
And then how do we interact with them? And so there's two, two main, I think, ideas that we have been using that uh, we've been fleshing out both at a large and a small scale. And so one of them is, is the PAPA team, which we've talked about, P-A-P-A. So you give each team a purpose. So the plant has a purpose, produce molds. Individually, the molding manager has a purpose, that is keep the mold flow going. The plant manager has a purpose, keep all the supplies available, you know, metal, make sure they don't run out of anything. But it all filters up to more molds, but just keep everything moving continuously. So that's their purpose. We then give them the autonomy, the A, to make any changes that they need to make on the floor. You can call Audible. You can shift planning schedules around. You can decide all of this. That's fine. To help them do this, like I said, a lot of them have never made these decisions. We've given them some principles that as long as they make decisions along the lines of these principles, we're probably going to be fine with it. First of all, safety. Never risk your safety or anybody else's. Two, make sure that we do you know whatever we can to make the customer a quality part. We don't want to sacrifice quality. Three, we want to make sure that we get it on time. Four, we want to make sure that it's profitable. So in that hierarchy, on time comes before profit. So if there is a question in the plant manager's mind about moving planning around because we're late on an important customer's part, he doesn't need to come check because he knows I got to get it on time. So I'm going to pay the OT that's needed to get this thing on time rather than piss the customer off, save on the OT because he's maximizing profit and then whatever. So we've given them those principles. And then the the fourth part is accountability. So, okay, you've made decisions. You've caught audibles. That's right. They're not all going to work. We get that. But there's some accountability. You can't have, you know, 20 bad things in a row. It's possibly your decision process and not just, you know, the luck of, of random outcomes. So, we and then and then we've been implementing implementing a structure along that line and this is all i mean this is all really recent for us figuring out how to do this with with these teams so we just wrote out rather than roles and responsibilities we just 2 weeks ago wrote out roles and results so the goal is you know you don't have duties nobody has a duty your job is to get something done so i'm not going to tell you your job is to count metal and your job is to you know make sure you order 2 weeks ahead of time and your job is to uh, flesh out the planning. I'm going to tell you your results are metal needs to always be available. We can't hold more than 10%. Right? I'm going to give you actual stuff to guide by. And I'm going to tell you, you figure out your duties. Like you're free to do whatever you need to do, but these are the results that it comes to. And and where that came from was we kept having meetings and I kept getting really frustrated. I was like, it's so obvious. These are the six things. Why is he not doing these? Why is she not doing these? And I realized I gave them duties that are never going to be complete. And I never told them the actual results that I wanted. Basically, I was giving them the wrong side of the equation. And so by giving them like, here's the four results you're responsible for as you carry out your purpose, it's part of your job now. Your job is just these four results. Achieve them. You're going to get your bonus. When bonus time comes, you're going to be you know great in every meeting. You're never going to be embarrassed in an accountability call. On the flip side, you could do all your duties but miss these results. And we're going to be like, well, how do we run out of metal? Like your only job is to make sure metal's available. Why did we run out? If it's an ops or a systems issue, we'll fix it. If it's just you four times in a row, well, we need to figure out if a different role is going to be right for you. So that Papa team structure, along with lining out those roles and results that line up with those purposes, has been a structure we put in place to make it very transparent on what we're expecting.
how do you square you're a very process driven guy right how do you square your desire for a correct and repeatable process with solely holding people accountable to the results however they want to go about doing that are are you is there is there something underlying this that you're creating a system that they're kind of working within like you you're kind of putting up invisible or visible guardrails for these guys yeah there's at this time there's not there is it's kind of like trust until we can't i don't i honestly i don't have enough experience to know all the ways it can go wrong to pre put up guardrails what we've done instead is this idea of transparent work so everybody that's working, whatever they're doing, everybody else can see it. The hope is if something goes off the rails, we'll kind of somebody will see it happening ahead of time. But currently, I and I say this, and this is a very open-ended statement, and it's on the wrong end, but I don't care how they do it. Like I care about that metal's available, that sand's available, the molds keep going, and that we can ship product to customer. If that keeps happening, I can think of one or two issues that will come up maybe a morale issue right you got a hard driver in there who's like whipping people to get it done but that's going to bubble up in other systems so we have like an, an internal and an external we have customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction survey that we're releasing so that should come up externally we also have what do you call it like gemba technically so i'm constantly talking to individuals below management like we we talk basically remember the other week i was doing shakeout with the guys. You talk about how you sometimes just drive the truck with the guys. So you can get some of those rumblings. I can't say I have a system for that. I just trying to watch for the bad stuff. Well, the system, the system is just being present on occasion, right? Yeah. That's the system right there. Yep. It's the calendar. Yeah. How do you handle that? Do you, do you have a, a way to, cause, cause the thing is you can watch 20 things, and none of those 20 will go off rails. It'll be the, the 21st thing that you're not watching. They'll all of a sudden blow up and you'll be like, I wasn't watching. And if you're not careful, you end up watching 60 things. They try and catch everything. And then you become a bureaucracy rather than a nimble company. So how do you, like, how do you fight just widening your scope of watch and metric and burdening versus just realizing like something's going to blow up every six months. I'd rather it blow up when it's small and frequently than a massive blow up every four years and have half the company walk out. Right. Yeah. I mean, we do, I mean, we chart, we, we do track a fair bit of metrics. I think you and I talked on our last call about what my daily huddle looks like and what we're looking at daily and on a weekly basis. So we do have, you know, we have revenue metrics, kind of volume metrics that we're tracking, you know, how we're pacing as far as demand and then, you know, as it relates to capacity and, and the productivity of our technicians and, our cogs, like are, are, you know, are we billing correctly? Or are we quoting correctly? Because, and the reason I, I feel that I have to track that so tightly is because we're so decentralized in that manner. Like I, my understanding of your business is that like you can do all the quoting and estimating basically like from HQ, right? Like you control that, right? Someone on your team controls that. I, I don't like, I literally have, you know, I literally have like a 19 year old technician in a truck. He's at a homeowner's house and he's going to quote this job. So I, I got to make sure he's quoting that correctly. Right. And I might, he might get one wrong, but I'm going to catch it immediately after. And we'll eat crow on that, on that job, but we're going to get it right the next time. Right. So how that's, are you, how are you catching it? So our, 
you know, well, for a while I wasn't catching it, right? And and like we said, like all this stuff is like iterated over time. The playbook's built, you know, the the plane is built as as it's flying, right? But we're catching it basically. I can I can pull a report out of our field service management software, Service Titan, that will show our material percentage build, right? So material as a percent of revenue, like build, what is that, right? And then each on a weekly basis, we we true that up against what it was spent, right? Because the software is not always correct. It's getting closer. We're, we're working on it, but, you know, or sometimes guys are using the wrong tasks altogether, right? Like maybe they, they bill out a customer and it shows that they put in like a standard toilet when really they gave them like a chair height, you know, freaking, you know, top of the line trapper keeper 3000 toilet or whatever. So that's more expensive, but they build it out. You know, maybe they wanted to close a sale. They, they knew they wouldn't get it the higher number. So they, so they did that. Right. So my material as percentage build looks fine, but then my material spend to my material build is wrong. Right. So we track that ratio. So anyway, where are we at? Tracking those variances. I can easily like fall down a rabbit hole if you get me going. So yeah, that's the stuff I love. So, see, Pete, you actually mentioned this earlier in this call. You said, hey, there's a parts of the business that I know are a mess. And I just say, this is the bigger one. I'm going to focus on this. I mean, at some point, you catching bad quoting is not even in the top five. Like, it's a problem, but it's not the top five. And there's bigger fish. Do you just at some point say, if it is what it is. We're always going to lose five to ten percent, but I can gain thirty percent on a new acquisition or restructuring, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely a balance, man. I mean, we we definitely don't want to grow without having solved these problems, you know. And, and I do think we have most of them solved at this point. And to be fair, like I'm not necessarily the one tracking this stuff anymore, right? Like I can see it. The stuff, the stuff is like reported up to me, but I'm not building that report. I'm not pulling that data. I'm not the one having these conversations with the technicians anymore to like, to, you know, get their shit together. So in a, to an extent, like myself and TJ have like, you know, we are trying to put the systems in place that either have, that either have like a fail safe, you know, or someone's responsible for it and tracking it each day or each week or whatever, right? Someone on the team. That's like, so, so a metric like that would be the plant manager, right? Our, our version of plant manager, which right now we're calling a GM, but have thought about changing that terminology because of, you know, because of some of the conversations I've had with you and Reg, right? For instance, like one thing we're working on now, like something I'm like very deep in the weeds on right now. And this is, I mean, this is the story of, of my journey so far is that I get like seriously deep in the weeds on one area every two to three weeks, four weeks, right? So right now I'm like deep in, bookkeeping, financial controls, balance sheet management, because that was what was broken for a long time. And and frankly, like it just, it just like kind of didn't matter. Like it, it was important. Of course it's important, but we were able to get away with it. We had a bunch of cash on the balance sheet, you know, whatever. It's fine. Like we're not going to bust a covenant on a loan. You know, we'll, we'll just like deal with this when we get to it. Well, now we're there. Right. And so, you know, actually you and I talked about this last week, you know, like, like possibly bringing in a third party, like professional bookkeeping firm to take care of a lot of this. And then for me, I have to figure out because, because of the nature of my business, you know, 30, 40% of our payments come via paper check, right? 
So like, I still have to process those, right? I mean, I, I could, you know, just blanket policy. Hey, we only accept credit card. One, I don't think that would land well with the customers. Two, it would increase my payment processing costs. So right now we're keeping paper checks, but I have to be able to process those on site at the different locations. And they have to be matched with the invoices and the payments from the, you know, from the field service management software to the accounting software, who's doing that, right? So, so now I'm like splitting and I have to make sure the way we're doing it can be, is like remote compatible. So like literally today, like, you know, building simple things like a check, like we have, we now have like a check ledger in Google Sheets. So the admin at onsite who's processing the paper checks and depositing them will, will like enter them into a ledger in Google Sheets, the bookkeeping firm, myself, everyone can see it, true it up with the invoice number, like all that shit happens remotely. But that's like the stuff I'm building now. Now, hopefully like, basically I worry about it right now and then I'll never, never have to worry about it again, you know? Yeah. Yep. That's what we're going through too. Thinking about that. I'm going to take time to build it. I just want to build it once and I want it to support whatever our long term is, which creates a lot of data gathering and shifting of, I mean, stuff shifted just since we talked about bookkeeping on what's possible. And I, I think actually I'm going to have to go a different direction. I wanted to outsource everything. And the reality is so like, cause <laughs> you go talk to a bunch of people and they say, yeah, we can do that or we can come close or whatever. I found a good question to ask is when do people leave you for any outsourcing firm? Like at what point do people leave? And the question, the answer I got is they get too big or they end up moving it all to their own ERP. Now I know we're doing a new ERP within a year. I told you that. And basically they're saying like, we can't help you much once you do that. So basically we would be building this whole outsource function for less than a year, which is not long-term. And so I think I'm thinking what we're going to do now is we're going to option two, which was, hire like somebody who's an accountant offshore. So probably maybe in Monterey where I've got a lot of contacts and we've already got some of our space working down there and say, okay, we are going to build a custom, uh, you know, bookkeeping for us. So we're going to have our own month end close checklist that they follow. It's custom to us. We'll build that function. It'll take an extra month writing out, you know, the 20 or so procedures. Here's how we want you to do manual journal entries. Here are how we want you to do the month end close. Here's the year end close. Here's the 10 metrics you put into the sheet. But once we do it, as we grow, we can have anybody do it. Heck, I can fill in and, and do it. So um, it's going to be more work on the front side loading that. It's still going to kind of be outsourced. You know, it, it's going to be down in our, our Monterey kind of group that we're building down there. But it'll give us more control, which is all right. I really wanted to not worry about it at all. I wanted just a CPA to handle it. But nobody will touch an ERP. We'll have to run two systems side by side, QuickBooks and our ERP. It means our ERP dashboard would never actually be accurate on any of the metrics that we build that have finances in them. And it sounds like a scale issue. A lot of these offices do smaller companies. We are at the top end where, you know, we're, we're between 12 and 15. We'll close out this year and between another acquisition and some growth opportunities that we have and the, the ones from acquisitions from last year, we could be 2025 20, within 18 months. So like now we're way outside the range. They're now they're hiring people just for us. And then I'm, I mean, we're kind of where you are with the, with the whole call rep where, you know, if it was five years out, I'd probably still do it. But if it's, if I'm a year out from having to do it myself, I'll just pull it forward and do it myself now. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that was, that was my issue with, cause I had an outsourced call center for a while and that was the problem. I mean, I think that's what you're mentioning, but you know, I was their largest client by three X. Right. And they couldn't support me and they weren't and, and they didn't know how to price me. 
So we ended up leaving them. And you were training anyway. You were doing the training and the documentation anyway. So yeah, at that point, you yeah, already we were doing the training. Them. Yeah, we were doing the onboarding of all the people. I mean, like it, we, it's not even their fault. Like they're they're a great, they are a great solution for a small company or like a really tiny organization. But but they just weren't for us, you know. So, well, they helped me get to where I was. I th- I, I kind of see this as that too. Um, I want to lean on this on this bookkeeping out this outsource bookkeeping as long as I can. I do think like pretty soon we'll see, man. I, I feel like multi-location and multi-entity, it could quickly get pretty complicated with like cash flowing between the entities, right? Like guarantee is provide is kind of like providing, it's kind of sharing some of their backend staff with this other company, vice versa. You know, they, they're kind of paying each other. There's cash flowing back and forth. Like some bookkeeper is going to be like pulling their hair out over that and probably pinging me about that way more than I want them to. Right. If I had someone in house, they would just take care of it. So that's like, that's where I see it breaking. But for right now, I'm, I'm trying to just like simplify this down where it's just an admin kind of basically like basically categorizing credit card transactions for costs and processing paper checks and exporting to QuickBooks from my from my ERP. And that's all they do on site. And then the bookkeeping firm takes everything in the background. I also wonder like, I wonder if you got, cause you guys, I, I feel like you guys have, and this could be just me being naive, but I feel like you guys are probably much simpler on the income side, like much fewer transactions on the income side, larger, fewer but probably much more complex on the material and balance sheet side with all the assets you guys have. And we are, we are, we are not complex. We're a very simple business, but compared relative to your business, I'd say you're right. Um, on the income expense side, balance sheet is pretty straightforward. You buy the machines, depreciate them. And the rest of it is just material where we get into like our, I would say our most complex part is cost of goods, assigning labor and material. Yeah, assigning labor and material to stuff that was actually shipped because we might buy all the material for three months at once. Labor is spotty. It's there's overtime. Not everything is directly re- related to production. Some things are related to secondary operations. We pulled in house. We have a captive machine shop. We outsource some parts, then do stuff in house. So allocating that correctly is actually one of the projects we're in the middle right now of cleaning that up, which is where I think an ERP will come in handy where we can, you know, separate that out easier and have better control of the matching principle, keeping our costs aligned with our revenue. Right now we have some things that are accrual and some things that are cash. And it's, it takes a lot of work to undo that every single month so that I get an idea of where we are actually at. So we're working on fixing that amongst uh, a number of other projects, but I feel like that's the dirty secret of a lot of the, a lot of small business operators that guys who, cause I've literally had these conversations with people recently that they haven't like a lot of them are like searchers and they're coming from private equity or they're coming from an MBA or whatever. They're, they haven't operated a business yet. And they're like, when they find out that, half my income statement is cash and half my income statement is accrual. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. 
It Are usually like comes cotton? from a bookkeeper from the previous owner that is not really a bookkeeper. They were basically logging transactions when they ha- happened, and then somebody taught them how to accrue like payroll. So they just did it the way they were taught, and you end up with these half accrual, half cash type statements. And then if you buy it, and it's never the biggest thing, right? You're like, well, the money's coming in. We'll clean that up in a year or two. I need to get more revenue, more customer, like obviously. And then you come back to it, and now you're twice as big. You didn't even do what the you did 90% of what the previous bookkeeper did, who was already 80% off what they should have been doing. And now it's a mess. And I think that's like what you're talking about. You talked to them at that point, and they're like, oh my God, like I think we're okay because there's cash in the bank, but I have no idea where we are at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's my story right it's now. The reality. You know, we're hoping in the next four or five weeks that that's fixed and that everything's accrued. But literally, like right now, I mean, my income is accrued. You know, like it's a uh, booked at time of invoice, and all of my cogs are cash. Or, oh, I'm not even cogs. All of my expenses are cash. Oh, uh, so yeah. So as prices go up, you'll see it right away in your sales but it'll be delayed in your cogs. Well, yeah. And, what, and I have net 30 terms on my supplies. So it gets kind of funny. Like I'll have, I mean, this happened to us this past month. We had a really, we had a killer January and we had a shitty February. Killer January means high material costs, right? Those all got booked in February when I had a bad revenue month in, in February. So it just compounds. You have like, it compounds in both directions. So you end up having like big variations. You have a lot of variability in the bottom line. That matching principle Um, is so key. I mean, I think, I think I've literally said the words matching principle three times today, three different conversations, just because it's, it's so important to get right to see where your business is at. Like, it's funny. Like when I was in school, I would see this and be like, this is BS. Like you just need to know where the cash is. Like all this accrual stuff is for accountants. It doesn't matter. But then you run a business and you're like, wait, in order to make decisions that impact my business in the long run, being six months out, 12 months out, five years out, I need to, and I general idea, like as the business runs today, how do I level out? You know what I mean? Like, am I, am I making 20 grand? Am I losing 20 grand? Because without that, you don't know if you can invest, you don't know if you can hire more. And that comes from smoothing out or accruing like material, cogs, labor, utility bills, lining them up right. And so all of a sudden you realize like, okay, day to day, you don't need to know, but for any decision that is more than three months out or a longer term impact, you don't know if you can hire, like you, you lost 20 grand, maybe you make 50 next month. And unless you start using accrual, you're like, am I going to be okay to hire somebody? Was this a really bad month or was this just really a good month? And yeah, it all comes down to you realize how important that accrual is. Well, what you realize too, is that, you know, when you are a small business, Right. Like I'd say, like if you're doing less than five million in revenue, four million in revenue, like you might not have like you don't really have the cash flow to have like a serious in-house finance staff. And even if like a lot of I you know, I do think that the outsourced bookkeeping solution that you and I have discussed, like I think it's gonna work for us. But a lot of these outsourced booking firms, like they suck. All they're good for doing is like categorizing transactions. Yeah. So basically, uh a machine learning thing that just yeah, is which I think so like mint.com does automatically. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't help you with this problem, you know? So you, you still got the problem. Now you're just paying else, someone else to do it in a, like just as poorly, if not more poorly than you. So 
but what you realize is that like you know it comes back to that that difference like if are you operating at the size or are you not and if you're not what you don't realize is that you're not just you're not just reviewing these reports now you're actually responsible for building them you have to do the day-to-day work the actual journal entries in quickbooks to like actually do the shit right how confident are you that you're able to that you're going to be able to do that probably more confident than me right i don't have background on this at all but like that's a different game it's not just reviewing oh i know how to read a balance sheet and how to read an income statement yeah okay yeah same me too man but like do i know how to like screw around in the quickbooks software each day in an efficient manner to to do that without wanting to like stick a shotgun in my mouth you know i mean like seriously so that's different like you actually have to, you're the one responsible for building it. That's, I don't know, man. It's just hard. So it's harder than I expected. That's what I'll say. It's not hard. The answer is just hire somebody to fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. We tried. I would have rather that, but I know at chess group. So we had, we had the Mexico operation, which we ran totally in house as far as all the accounting. So I, I did all of it because it, it was a smaller operation. We did probably 1.5 million out of Mexico down there and we had five employees. So there was basically monthly reconciliation of the cash accounts and then about, I don't know, 15 to 20 month end journal entries. So I had to learn them. I mean, I Googled, you know, the correct entries to do stuff like payable, like wage payable, uh, the taxes. I basically went to an accountant and said, what are the correct journal entries for the taxes? What do I debit? What do I credit? And then I just wrote a document basically for myself, but it was a checklist. And then eventually when Miriam came on board, I said, here's the document I use. I cleaned it up a little bit, made it into a checklist and said, okay, here's all the things you got to do at the end of the month to close it out. And it was easy to pass off. So it can be confusing, but it only has to be confusing once. And then once you write down the entries, the entries for a company are usually the same. And it's the same exact approach month after month after month. Like Look at ending inventory, look at beginning, look at what you purchased, back into what you use. Here's where those three pieces of data are. Here's the formula. And then you plug in, here's the, you know, the journal entry that you use to adjust your cogs or your inventory or your material. Figuring it out, making sure it's solid is one thing, but replicating and reproducing can be done by anyone. Yeah. That like inventory cogs formula you just mentioned is like something that I have been enlightened on just this month. So so that part for me is the easy. For me, the hard part is <laughs> getting what my ending inventory was, like the data is they just don't keep any. And yeah, sometimes it means going out on the shop floor and counting shit. That's what we've been doing. Right. We've been, yeah. you know, and so you start like, cause, you know, I'm people are like, I'm the no code guy. And I'm like, what tool are you using? What this and what that? And it's like, uh, step one is get the data. We use a, um, legal pad and they go out there and literally every Monday they take pictures of their legal pad count and send it in. And we're going to keep doing that. Like I'm huge on manual first. Like I remember I talking to people offline and they're like, what are you using for this? And I'm like, paper and pen, man. It's the quickest iteration is on paper and pen. And so we're about to shift from that, but building a tool to do that would have been a waste because we've changed it six times. We've changed what we count. We've changed how we count it. We tried ingots. It took too long. We tried something else. It didn't work. We went to pallets and gating baskets. That seems to be the best. And so now 
based off that, we changed other things. Now we know exactly what we're counting. So now we can have like a checklist form, you know, with all the different kinds of metal and consumables and they can just write the number of gating baskets and, and pallets and we'll use that for a few months. And when that's good, we'll have it. So it's just a iPhone app you can walk around, enter it all into. And eventually the ERP will actually be able to use production once our data is correct. But I'm very slow to build tools, to be honest with you. I think nothing iterates faster than yeah. a piece of paper. Yeah. Well, the reality is you have to understand the problem and understand like the environment before you build the tool. Right. And, and the reality is like, even if you went straight to the tool, nothing's going to get you around counting that shit yourself at least once. <laughs> like, like you're gonna have to go out there and count it. Just get off of Google. Stop looking at like best inventory management system yeah. for me. Like, <laughs> yeah. get out there and just, count just, your shit. It's like six pallets, man. Just get out there and do it. Um, yeah, yeah. So God bless too. EJ. He counted everything in our shop last week. Yeah, I mean, we most. That's the thing. There are things that most large companies do that small companies are just like, there's no way people do that. We, they, we just assume Boeing and Parker and all these companies just have all this tech that they do it with. So I'm going to get to the closest tech that I can. I'm going to use Airtable and a scanner and Glide apps and whatever. No, Boeing and Parker, they do cycle counts. They count all their inventory manually once a year. They split it into 12 sections. They split those 12 sections into however many people are helping. And you do cycle counts. Like you pull everything off the shelf and you enter it manually once a year. And that auto creates adjustments. So yeah, there's, there's manual work that happens that you have more people to do it, but you also have more to do. So I think manually, I think annually, not quinquently, but annually, <laughs> you should cycle count your material and see where you're at. Like just have an end of year on everything. Just recess the books for the next year or two. Yeah. It just gets you clean. Yeah. Get the, you front. the key is doing it in a low burden way. And I think that's the key. Like for me, that's always the biggest question. It's not sexy to talk about. I've mentioned it a few times online and nobody even picks up on it. Non-intrusive tools are more important than tech forward tools. So to me, and I always say this to Eric, what's the most non-intrusive way we can have, get this information? Is it, is it have a camera snapshot the palette? area and then just have that auto emailed somewhere is it to have frank go count is it to do an inspection when the when the part when those pallets come in of how many pallets came in like what is the best time the best place where people aren't going like nobody's because the most intrusive is somebody driving over on a sunday and doing just that right like that's that's time intrusive that's that's labor intrusive so when are we already close to doing this and when you when you think about it from that perspective you end up a lot of times not quite implementing tools because the tool's intrusive. Like somebody's going to have to learn how to use this. And I built it so it makes sense to me, but they might not get it. And then I got to train on it. And then I got to have a video somewhere that they can access. Where do I put that video where everybody could like, you start to end up like, yeah, it's tech, but it's not really helpful unless you're used to putting stuff on your phone. So uh, a lot of times we're trying to think about the least intrusive way in that goalpost moves too. So you use paper. People get used to tracking and then you say, okay, from now on, don't use paper. There's a Slack. So we have an inventory Slack channel now and we'll say, just put it into the inventory Slack channel, like whatever the inventory is. And Marion in Mexico gets it and she actually types it where it goes. So now they've gone from paper, which was the least intrusive, but now that they're used to it, they go to Slack. Now, soon they're so used to going into Slack that it's not really more intrusive. Just have them enter into a form that goes directly to the data source 
and free up Miriam. So that that level of intrusion goalpost moves as you get them used to certain things. Um, and that's why I said earlier, like there's a two year vision where I know exactly where I want to be. And I'd love to start it tomorrow, but it would be so intrusive that we'd spend all this time doing shit and not actually making shit. And obviously, you know, I have, I had a boss that used to always say this and I used to think it was the lamest line, but I think about it all the time now, like, don't forget, we still have to run the business, you know, cause you get so busy building the business that you could bog down running the business. And he's like, Hey, at the end of the day, we still got to run the business. I'm like, well, of course we do. But it, when you're thinking about a lot of stuff that's bigger than the business cross plant, cross platform, you know, cross role, you can forget. I think that, Hey, we still like, we make money from selling molds, not from using tech, not from having the best dashboard. We make money from getting castings out the door. How do I help every single person here get back to our number one purpose, which is more castings at a good time that are high quality out to our customers. Andrew Grove says that acceptable quality at an acceptable time at the lowest cost. That's what Andy Grove says in his book there. Yeah, I think that's that's important for me to hear right now, least intrusive way. That's really good. Cause that's I mean, like I said, like we're like we're gonna break some glass in this company. Like we're just going to. You know, I think a lot of guys when they talk about acquisition transitions, you know, everyone loves to talk about first do no harm and nothing's gonna change. And I think that's just bullshit. I said that online some recently and somebody called me out, like Tell them nothing's going to change. And they're like, yeah, but isn't everything going to change? And I'm like, well, <laughs> well, yeah. 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 But there's, I mean, there's it's two sides. Job, like, the, <laughs> and, and I hate to speak about what they think, but what they, when they're thinking change, they think my hours, my paycheck, my responsibilities. And that's probably for the most people, not the, at least people that would care about that, not going to change. What is going to change is where our data is, the kind of customer we go after, like how many locations we have, that'll change. But that's not what they're thinking when they ask. So I don't feel bad saying it, but it's also, like you said, not really true. Like, yeah, we're going to change everything within the next three months. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And your wages are going to change and your hours are going to change, your roles are going to change. Chaos. Yeah. No, but I think it's important to delineate that, right? I, like, I, like, you know, truly like thinking through um, my approach to this transition, like very clear messaging around wages not changing, hours not changing, roles generally not changing, right? At least not for the guys in the field, like very much so on the management side, probably. But and then it's, yeah, but like stand by for changes everywhere else, right? Because because we need to get you where you know we need we need to tie you in, yeah. right? Yep. Um, now the good thing is that just about all these changes make everyone's life easier. I was going to say, yeah. I think the first change scares them. By the by, the second change, they're like, wait a minute, these are good changes. And by the fifth one, they're actually bringing changes to you. Like I got more we can do, and then you got a culture change right there. Yeah, and that's what's so important. I think so. You know, this is like very much like critical to my leadership style. I know it is yours too. Like spending that time with the people of that acquisition, like very early on, right? Like spending like one-on-one -on -one time with as many people in the company as you can, and and just hearing them out, 
what are your ideas? If you were going to take this company to the next level, what would you do? If you, if your job was easy, what would it look like? You know? And frankly, like they're probably going to give you a lot of answers that are like encircling tighter and tighter to what you're trying to do anyway. So then two weeks later, a week later, you roll out that change. It's really your idea, right? But it's not your idea. It's their idea. You know, like it was their idea. They pitched it to the new management and now it's being implemented. And they're like, whoa, that's crazy. You know, they might not realize that you've been thinking about that or, or you already have a playbook at your company in New Jersey that, that does it just like that. Right. But truly, like they've been working in this business. They're like, I know other companies do it better than this. Like, I know we can leverage this technology that we already have better. I'm just not really sure what that looks like, but I'm sure we can do something better. Hey, Brian, in the team meeting, hey, Brian, I know, you know, you, you mentioned to me, I heard it from a couple other guys too, like, you know, that we're going to do this. So, hey, guess what? We're going to do it. It's going to be kind of a pain in the ass the first couple of days. But if we all work together, like it's going to, it's going to come together. And they're like, fuck yeah, this is our idea. You know, like I've seen it play out like that. So that's exactly how I'm trying to approach it. And it's not that, you know, like I don't want to come off like I'm trying to like be manipulative because I'm not. The reality is like you just when you when you spend when you actually get in and spend time with people, whether it's in the field or in the office over coffee, whatever. They're going to tell you ideas they have. And they're not like. dude, None of these people are like stupid, you know. So they're all going to be good ideas and they're probably going to align very closely, if not perfectly, with what you're already trying to do. And now it's not your idea. It's their idea. It's our idea. Well, and a lot of them are are with tired management owners that kind of stopped growing it 10 years ago and have been just living off of it, enjoying it. Now they don't even want the hassle because they got enough money. So they've had 10 years of stagnant where anybody who's not an owner wants to grow. But the owner's like, yeah, I'm good. So you have so many ideas and just to see one or two of them get implemented gets them like, oh, we're finally hitting our next stride. Like, I'm glad I stayed on. I'm glad I'm part of this. Yeah. So I, I like, yeah. So to circle back, like I'm of the opinion that you can absolutely come in and, and, and force a ton of change in these companies very quickly. And I think if you, there are plenty of guys out there with who have tried to do that and like, their employees have, you know, freaked out, left, tritted, mutinied, right? I think that was just, that was just like poor implementation, poor execution, you know? That's where the art comes in. Like they, that's the stuff with people is hard to systematize because you have to read between the guy who just needs a reason to believe in the company again, versus the guy who has already given up and is just going to start trouble versus the guy who needs more power versus the guy who needs less. Like there's an art to understanding what is the motivation behind what I'm seeing here, reading it and then adjusting to that in real time. Uh, there's no system. You don't just go in and be like every acquisition, I give them this speech and then I sit with each of them for one hour over coffee privately. And I ask these six questions about how would you grow and how would you, and like, that's, that's bullshit. Like that's awesome. It's also bullshit because one of them, you might realize like you have to, again, you have to be able to tell the difference between those different kinds of people because every company has those. And if you spend an hour with the guy who's already given up and wants to sabotage versus the guy who's not looking to share ideas, he's looking for something else completely. You have to be able to read that. So I always think it's funny when somebody's looking for a, like, has like a conversation strategy like that. 
Um, I mean, it's a good template, but I pretty much go off script every single time because I notice something within two or three minutes that I'm like, yeah, so this is a different situation here. Yeah, no, absolutely. You have to be, that's where it's tougher to like, like really give somebody actionable advice who's going into it. It's like, you know, you just got to be light on your feet. You have to actually be listening. I feel like I personally learned that doing sales. Because in sales, if you're going to actually get good at it, you're not. You're not given a presentation and you're having conversations with people and adjusting in real time based on what they tell you. So like I never prepped for my sales calls after I got better at it. When I first did, I did. But because I knew I'm only saying something based off of what he says. There's no prep. I just I got to know my industry and I got to know where I can help and where I can't. And then after that, you go and you talk. And it was always like I love. That's why I love sales because I would go in and just find their problem, solve it for them. And if they just decided to keep using me to solve it, great. Maybe you learned it, you know, on the field, having to adapt in real time situations. But both of them show you like you can prep all day, but the reality is five seconds in, something's going to happen and we're going to be switched. So I'm going to know my principles rather than try and map out my actual tactics for this specific uh, op. Yeah. Listen to me talk, Marine. Yeah. I appreciate you talking Marine and not talking, you know, that other, that yeah, other, yeah, know, that, other that other branch on what they do. <laughs>